Let's go ahead and begin our reading today from the book of Judges. We're going to be reading in Judges chapter 2 and Judges 16. Now the angel of the Lord came came up from Gilgal to Bachim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bachim, and there there they sacrificed to the Lord. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath, Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. And that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were all around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and and the Asheroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was, was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Continuing in Judges 16, starting in verse 18. 
Now when Delilah saw that Samson had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all that it is all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. She said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains. And he was a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice, for they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their god, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country, who has been, who has slain many of us. It so happened when they were in high spirits that they said, Call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And about three thousand men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this one time. O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two pillars on which the house rested, and he braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all of his might, so that the house fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. Then his brothers and all his father's household came down, took him, brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Ashtarol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. Thus he had judged Israel twenty years. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We ask you that we would see your son Jesus as he's prophesied in this passage. God, we ask that we would learn from Israel, that we would not turn and serve other idols but rather that we would put your word in our heart so that we would not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are moving from Joshua all the way to Samson. Please don't think that uh, Joshua and then Samson, there's nothing in between. We're just, um, it's the 15th week now and we're only on Samson, so... um, Obviously, we're not going to get all the way to cover everyone in the Old Testament who foreshadows Christ, but we are trying to highlight the main ones just so that we, again, develop a a way of reading the scriptures in which we're trained to see these kinds of things when they show up. I think this is one of the most concrete types of Christ, and we've seen week uh, a few for the last three or four weeks how negative types of Christ, that is, types of Christ who don't model Christ, but rather model the failure 
that Christ is coming to fix, those are true types of Christ. It doesn't have to be a perfect righteous person for that, that person to foreshadow or to point forward to Christ. And so as we look at Samson today, I'm actually not even going to focus really on Delilah. Um, you, you, most of you have probably heard the story of Samson and Delilah, and you know that uh, Delilah deceived Samson. And we'll, we'll cover that a little bit, but really we're not focusing on Samson's failures this morning so much as what the events surrounding Samson's life say about the life of Christ and what Samson uh, points forward to in terms of the literary technique and the poetry that's used in the scriptures. It's my opinion that uh, one of the great problems with evangelical Christianity or Protestant Christianity, if you will, is an inability to read the Bible poetically. That is, uh, David makes the statement in Psalm 119 that he, uh, he asks God, he asks Yahweh, he says, open my eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. And then he also says that I have treasured or I have valued your word. I've hidden it in my heart so that I may not sin against you. And so it's my opinion uh, that, and, and not just mine, but the church's opinion, that, that the Bible is a treasure. It's something to be valued. And as you see beautiful things in the scriptures, you, your heart will be inclined by the Holy Spirit more and more, ever increasing towards living out your uh, righteousness and sanctification. And so, um, this series is really designed to train us to read the Old, Old Testament in such a way that we see Jesus when he shows up. So we're going to look at how we got from Joshua to Judges, and we're going to see just exactly how it took place that we got all the way from Joshua conquering Jericho to uh, them sinning again. We're going to look at God's mercy in the midst of all of these judgments. Even while he judges, he still allows for a remnant of his people to remain. We're going to look at what idol worship is and how it shows up in the New Testament. Um, we're going to look at this this man of God that shows up and, and meets Samson. And um, we actually didn't read that portion, but we'll just cover it briefly. We're also going to look at Samson's life and how that points forward to Jesus's life, as, as well as Samson's death and how that points forward to, to Christ's death. And also we're going to focus on at the end the, the present victory that Christ has obtained for his people. And it's not a victory that we're waiting to take place. It's a victory that has taken place. And that um, if we respond in faith to that message, it will take place for us. So last we left off, Joshua just conquered Jericho. And the people had uh, destroyed some stuff. And it was, it was great. Uh, the people of God entered the land and they were beginning to uh, take the other nations out, and, and God was establishing his people, his kingdom, in the land of his choosing. But that didn't last very long, and the people uh, immediately made treaties with other, we, other people. We saw last week how Joshua had been deceived by uh, the Gibeonites, and they had, they had um, deceived Joshua into letting them stay around, and they were actually supposed to be destroyed. And the people of God, at, right after this, begin to let everyone else in the land um, to stay. Three or four different tribes in the first 
chapter of Judges let other nations who were supposed to be destroyed stay in their land. These other nations who were supposed to be destroyed speak of little compromises of sin that we let remain in our lives. The, the high cost of low power and low purity is extremely important for us as Christians. If we make compromises with areas of sin in our life, this is exactly the same thing as the Israelites letting other nations remain in their land. There is a life that you have in your soul, your spirit, your body that God has given you as an inheritance, the inheritance that you have in Christ, and that victory is to be worked out, in, and you're not supposed to just let the little uh, compromises of sin or, or evil influence stick around in, in, in your land, so to speak. And this affects not only the believer, but also the entire church. Uh, just because one or two tribes had let their nations stay in their inheritance, uh, it doesn't mean that that just affected just those tribes. We see really quickly how all of Israel has moved into idolatry. Now, you might be asking what happens when God lets his people uh, fall into idolatry. He's actually trying to bring them to an understanding of his goodness over and against the passing pleasures of sin. And so in the midst of God handing over his people to be oppressed by their enemies, he still has a righteous desire that that they should come out of those trials and and persevere. And so in the midst of the judgment that God brings on his own people, he raises up these men and women in the book of Judges who bring righteousness and bring deliverance to uh, to the land. Um, some of them are Othniel. One of he, he took a little ox prod, little thing that a shepherd uses, and he killed like three hundred guys with it. It's amazing. And you know uh, Ehud, and then there was uh, the guy who uh, Ehud killed Eglon. And there's all of these judges. Uh, Deborah kills some people, uh, both men and women. God raises them up, and they defeat back these enemies who are oppressing Israel and stealing their grain and destroying their vineyards. And so God raises up these people as a means of mercy in the midst of his judgments that he brings out against his people. And in, in that, they, they for a time turn back to the Lord. But because they didn't destroy their idols and they just tried to get rid of some of the issues or some of the problems of their sin, that is the the Philistines or the Moabites or the Ammonites who were oppressing them and destroying their lands, because they only tried to get rid of the problem and didn't get rid of the idols, they fall back into bondage and God has to bring up another deliverer and they and and the cycle repeats. And so the failures in this book, in this book of Judges for the people of God, also speak for a need of a a better deliverer, a better judge. Now you might think, well, I don't bow down to a statue made of iron or gold or stone or wood. That's true. You may not. But there are other types of idolatry that are not manifest only in the physical, but rather they show up in our hearts. It's an idolatry of the mind, as Paul says, idolatry of our spirits, a desire for things that we don't need or shouldn't have. And all sin is a type of idolatry. Sometimes we think that, well, I don't do pornography or I don't do drugs, and so 
I am a righteous person, where, whereas it's actually the case that you have remaining sin in your life that you're not even concerned about. And time and again, we should remind ourselves of the lists in the scriptures of, of particular types of sin so that we don't deceive ourselves into self-righteousness. I'm, I'm guilty of these things just as much as you are. And the Bible has a number of different readings, uh, one's in Proverbs, a few are in the writings of Paul, and we're just going to look at certain types of idolatry real quick to remind ourselves of our condition. Lust is an idolatry of personal gratification, that is, you want something right now that you can't have because of, of your circumstances. Greed, it's a type of idolatry of possessions and power over and against the, the position that you have now, you want you want to be CEO when you're just a manager or, or something of the sort, or you want money when you're poor and you want that money more than you want to work for that money, but you'd rather uh, begin to envy it and steal. Sloth is, is something that's almost not talked about today, but it's just a, an apathy towards the commandments of God. It's a desire to stay at rest and, and to be lazy. And when God calls you to work diligently, if you're a man, you're supposed to provide for your family. And so sloth can manifest itself as, as not wanting to find a job or, or not wanting to be a, a righteous steward of the things that God has called you to. But it's not only being a man, it's also being uh, as a woman, you can be slothful if you're slow to, you know, honor your husband or or to honor your parents. Sloth is a type of idolatry of your will over the will of God and the commandments of His scriptures. Self righteous anger is idolatry of personal gratification and personal preference over another one's. So if somebody crosses your will and you you respond in wrathful anger. That's an idolatry. Envy is an idolatry of status. You see someone in life who is in a different position and you want their position. You don't want to just be on their level. You want to, you want to take it from them. And so it's an idolatry of, of, of social status. You see either your neighbor's property or your neighbor's spouse or your neighbor's things, and you want that, and you don't want your neighbor to have it at the same time. Pride is an idolatry that we make of ourselves. It's it's wanting others' praise and wanting people to notice you, whereas you should be noticed by God. And Proverbs says that another lips should praise you, not not your own. And and pride is is boastful. It's wanting to be admired to an unnatural level. And rather than reflecting the glory and beauty of Jesus, you want to gather and 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 bring glory to yourself. I think in my in my opinion this mostly manifests itself today among our youth on on Facebook and Twitter, and, and those things are just breeding grounds for this type of, of activity. Vanity is the idolatry of society and man-pleasing, that is, you do things so that people will notice you. It's really related to pride in a lot of ways. But this book, it tells us that there are, there are types of idolatries which we need delivered from, and the fact that the people of God fall time and time again into these idolatries means that we don't even, we not only need a greater deliverer, but we need also a greater sustainer who will help us stay free. It's not enough that we get delivered from a type of sin only to fall into another type of sin, or we trade lust for greed, 
or we trade desiring money for desiring, uh, you know, power. Uh, that's not enough for us to conquer one area and let another area slip at the same time. In fact, you can do that and 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 even deceive yourself in that you are following the Lord more closely, and and really you're just choosing a different sin that doesn't burn your conscience as much yet. So this this book tells us we need a greater deliverer and a greater sustainer, and Samson points forward to that greater deliverer. Because of time, we're actually going to skip one of the greatest Christophanies in the scriptures. I would very much encourage you to go check out Judges 13. It is... Okay. It is probably the the most beautiful Christophany. And if you ever need to convince someone that Jesus is in the Old Testament, Judges 13 is like uh, a grand slam. Uh, it's like a three bases loaded with a you know 75 mile an hour fastball down the middle and your um, Mark McGuire, some, I don't know, somebody who can hit home runs. So Samson's life points forward to Jesus's life, and, and we're going to look at how that takes place. In Judges 13.1, it says, The Lord gave them over into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, Samson came about, he was born at a time where the people of God, Israel, had, had been oppressed by the Philistines. And so, in the same manner, Jesus, he shows up on the scene. He's born into time. God sends him forth into time at the exact moment where the Romans have taken over Jerusalem and they, they have installed a governor who they've named King Herod. And that king isn't a righteous king from David's line, but rather he's a evil and wicked and deceitful king. And this, this speaks of a unique parallel that we're going to see time and again in, in Samson's life and Samson's death that almost is, is a one-for-one one correspondence. In Samson's life in Judges 14, he obtains a Gentile bride in the same way the bride of Christ is primarily now a Gentile bride, in that the people of God has been moved from just Israel to all of the earth. Samson begins to demonstrate his righteous leadership at a very early time in his life by killing a young lion. So too Christ has destroyed the works of the devil in in Peter in First Peter five eight, the devil is described as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and Samson had absolutely no trouble in in destroying this lion. He ripped it apart with nothing in his hand, and in the same way, Christ in no way was matched by his adversary, Satan, sickness, or sin. Samson's victories for the people of God are described in Judges 15:18 as a great deliverance and likewise the work of Christ on the cross is a great salvation that we are not we are told not to neglect in Hebrews 2. In Isaiah 63 it prophesies of Jesus saying the one who's coming up from Edom this one is mighty to save. And so so Jesus, his great victory that he obtains for us, which we sang about this morning in, in that song called the Anthem, that victory is foreshadowed by Samson's great deliverance in which he almost single-handedly destroys all of the Philistines. But he doesn't achieve a complete victory. And so even in his incomplete victory, we see we need someone who can make a complete victory. 
Samson is deceived by Delilah, and we're going to look at how that mirrors the events that happen with Christ. But we're going to go over our reading today in, in chapter 16 of the book of Judges, and we're going to look at how those specific events point to Jesus' death. In Judges 16.2, it says that Samson's enemies have surrounded him. In the book of Psalms, uh, chapter 22, David prophesies in, in a prayer that he writes, a song that he writes, describing his own circumstances. At the same time, David, describing his own circumstances, is, is, uh, he's prophesying of, of a, an emotional cry that, that Jesus makes in the midst of his suffering and persecution and death. In Psalm 22, 12 through 13, we read, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a raving, uh, a ravening and roaring lion. In the same way that Samson's enemies surround him, so also Christ, in the hours before his death, was led before the Sanhedrin or the, the religious court of that day, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and began to accuse him. But before that accusation happened, Christ was betrayed by Judas. In the same way, in Judges 16, verse 5, second half of that verse, the Philistines come to Delilah and they make her a promise. They say, entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him, that we may bind him and afflict him. Then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Likewise, Judas had obtained a promise from the, the Pharisees saying that if you hand over this one, this, the, if you hand over Jesus, we will give you 30 pieces of silver. Delilah was Samson's lover, and Judas was the one who shared in his bread uh, with, with Jesus. And so Delilah literally abuses her love, uh, if you will, betrays Samson with her love, betrays him with a kiss. In the same way, when Judas hands over Jesus to the Roman guard that was led, or the temple guard that was led by the Pharisees, he kisses Christ on the cheek and uh, speaks to him and calls him affectionately in a mocking tone, Rabbi. In Judges 20, uh, sorry, Judges 16, verse 20, Yahweh departs from Samson in the moment that he offers up his life. In the same way, Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27, verse 46, it says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want to be clear here. Jesus never, Jesus' death does not mean that he was not God. When Jesus is saying that, that, there is, that Yahweh has forsaken him, or, or my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? That, uh, or why have you forsaken me? That is a pointer back to Psalm 22, verse 1. But in that, there is no, uh, there is no uh, removal of Christ from the fellowship of God, but rather that there is a mystery in which, in Jesus' death, the eternal fellowship that existed between the Father and the Son was for a time broken, and Christ in that moment began to taste of death and of separation. In Judges 16.21, it says, Then the Philistines seized Samson and gouged out his eyes, and they bound him with bronze chains. Samson, this one who had 
destroyed all of these Philistines, is now blind. He can't see on his own, and he he is uh, now at the mercy of those who are leading him to places where he doesn't want to go. And in the midst of, of this, Samson is is completely humiliated. In the same way, in Psalm 22, verse 16, David prophesies of what is going to happen to Christ. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. In Matthew 27, 29, we see Christ receiving a crown of thorns, having been stripped of his robe and beginning to be completely and utterly humiliated. In Judges 16.25, first part of the verse, it says, It so happened when they, the Philistines, were in high spirits that they said, Call for us Samson that he may amuse us. In Psalm 22.17b through 18, it says, They look and they stare at me. This is the, the per, David prophesying by the Holy Spirit in the voice of Christ in the midst of his suffering. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that actually happens in Matthew 27, 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Now, that may not sound like entertainment, but casting lots is a form of gambling. And so in Matthew 27:35, Matthew is saying that the Roman guard, the Roman soldiers who were around the cross, taking the robes from Christ and dividing them up, this was a game to them. This was their entertainment. In Judges 16:25b, it says, "So they called for Samson from the prison, and he entertained them, and they made him stand between the two pillars. These two pillars are poetic pictures of the cross uh, on either side of Christ. In Luke 23, verses 32 through 33, we read, Two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the Skull, they, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Judges 16, 26 says, Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Samson here is about to push these pillars down, and before he can do that, he needs this little boy to lead him to the proper place and to show him where to put his hands. Now, this assistance that Samson receives from this little boy is in no way mirrored, and it actually tells us that we need one who can get to this victory whether or not there's a little boy to assist him. Christ on the cross receives one time and then another the offering up of a, a wine that's mixed with gall, and gall is a type of poison that has uh, the, the properties in, in it which would cause him to die a quicker death. But Jesus Christ did not take any shortcuts in his suffering in your place. He received no assistance other than the carrying of his cross at, for a very brief respite. But on the cross, he completely, consciously endured your punishment that you should have received. It says in Matthew 27, 34, Then they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. 
In Judges 16, verse 27 and 29, it says, Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Samson grasped the two pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And I hope you're beginning to see the poetic beauty that is in this scene. In the same way that Samson pushes down the pillars, so Christ also had his hands raised and extended on the cross. In Colossians 2, 13 through 15, we, we begin to read of, uh, of Jesus's victory that he executes against the powers of Satan. It says, Paul writes in beginning in verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What this says is that the Father has canceled the record of debts, that is, the record of your individual transgressions that you have committed. That record, the Father has nailed it to the cross in nailing his Son to the cross. And not only that, Jesus makes a public display showing us that he has disarmed the powers of darkness through his victory on the cross and resurrection. In Judges 16.30, we see Samson at the last moment before his death. He, he lets out a cry, let me die with the Philistines. But our, our Savior is not vindictive. He says in the last few minutes, it is finished. He makes a de- declaration of victory. In Judges 16, verse 30, we see, And he bent with all of his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and on all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those who he killed in his life. Even though Jesus had time and again made little victories against uh, leprosy and and, and demon, uh, demon influence and... and uh, uh, at one point bringing Lazarus up out of the death, the victory that Christ purchased at the cross was way more substantial, complete, and effective than all of the victories that he had made in his life. And his power and victory over sin, sickness, and death is still total and complete. We read about this in Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 19, Paul's asking, he's praying that the Ephesian church would know this, that they would know the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, 
not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, that is Christ, as head over all things to the church. This victory that we have obtained through Jesus is a present victory. And Paul, in this last phrase in in Ephesians 1, verse 22, he says uh, that he put all things in subjection under his feet. That is, all things are underneath Christ's feet. Christ is reigning, as we said in the creed this morning, at the right hand of the Father. From that place, he will come to judge the living and the dead. That means that Jesus Christ is the supreme reigning king over all of the universe now. He's not coming back to reign. He's currently reigning. And although it may not look like it, it will be revealed in just a very short time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, here is what we're doing. Here's what, here's what our ministry is to you, Church of Corinth. <clears throat> Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God had predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Philistines, when putting Samson to death, thought that they were winning a victory. And yes, it's true, Samson did die, and he was not raised up. But when the Romans and the the Pharisees and the Sadducees put to death Christ, they thought they were winning. But Paul in this passage says, if they knew what kind of victory was going to come about through Christ's death, they would have never done it. My dad had earlier this uh, morning had talked about our efforts to begin to move towards evangelism. It's my belief that you should not go and evangelize at all without coming to a revelation of, of the effectiveness of Jesus's work on the cross in actually overcoming sin and sickness and the works of the the evil one. And the reason why I believe that is because of a key word in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. As we begin these next few months in our church to to, uh, move forward in evangelism, both one-on-one and and open-air preaching and, and discipleship, I want us to keep in mind that the reason why Jesus sent out his disciples into the earth after his death was because they needed to go after his death because they needed a complete and sure and total victory in order to proclaim and preach the gospel because the gospel is Christ's victory over sin, sickness, and Satan. And so in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, we read, Jesus came up and spoke to them, the the disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Then the key key phrase here is, Go therefore and make disciples. You could read it this way. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. With that in mind, go forth and make disciples. Or because this has taken place, Go forth and make disciples, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That literally means to bring them under the name, that bring them into the way of, of, of God, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As we begin to move in a very uh, intentional way in this church to evangelism, it's vital for you if you want to evangelize to your friends and, and to your family that you come to an understanding of the work of Jesus being complete, total, and finished. And with that in mind, we're going to close in prayer and then take communion.